Good evening. You are listening to Weekly Refresh here on WNYU 89.1 FM and online at WNYU.org. This is a technology news talk show hosted by three to four lovely people. <laughs> uh, my name is Jacob. My name is Tristy. My name is Nick. And I guess I'm the, the fourth maybe. Yeah, you're my like, name's Keenan. You're like the maybe. Hey, Jacob, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. A Why question? do you gesticulate so vigorously when you're doing the intro to the He's show when no one can us. hear you, when no one can see you? What Specifically is sti- for wait, us. Hang on. What is gesticulating? Gesticulating. It's when you make gestures. You're like, uh-huh. welcome to Weekly Refresh. Yeah, because, you know, at one point, this will be a live video show. And when that happens, and when I become, yeah, a, at when one I become point, a game show because it's never host. been a live video show before ever. No. So but but when, you can you can. <laughs> kind of hear him projecting That's with true. his hands on, the, on that true. voice. I, Look, I, when I become a game show host, <laughs> it's very important to have a whole persona and an air to you. you know, energy is going to be the new host of HQ. Man, oh, let, let, let's get back on topic that. here before we completely Scott. devolve. Yeah. That that's usually the fifteen minute mark. Well, we not didn't the hit two a topic yet, so so you let's, could let's start. Argue. Let's start a topic. Yeah. So I, I probably should have mentioned that we are. Inter- uh, I had the opportunity to interview uh, Virginia Eubanks, the author of Machine Algorithm: Automating Inequality. Excuse me, automating the book Automating Inequality, uh, and we have an interview with her that we'll be talking about later on in the show. But moving on, I have a story from the. Big bad evil company known as Amazon. Two stories technically, uh-huh. but we can talk about either or. Amazon's oh, okay. a big company, right? So big Amazon is, is quite break a big company. Uh, they're doing two things. We already know that they can break into your house. Now they can break into your car and do, do effectively the and same thing. And also that they should be broken up. Yeah. Oh right, we talked about that last. Yeah. La- last, last week. <laughs> but there's another story that that Amazon. I, this is a more interesting one. I think the Amazon is working on a secret project to build a home robot, a home butler robot. How do you, it's not a secret if you know about it. Well, it's there. Well, Amazon declined to comment on it because yeah. they said that we don't report on rumors or speculation. But it's a. Unless those rumors and speculation are probably true and everyone's mad at them and their stock's going to go down, then they'll report on it. Well, uh, can their stocks even go down I don't further? Think their stock's anyway, go down on the, this it's, the project is named Vesta, okay? And the, basically, <coughs> I, people are speculating that it's just it's just a mobile Alexa, right? It's just a bit, it's just a little blob that oh, you can talk to that, like, and give moves? Alexa things to. Yeah, okay. Molexa. What? M- mobile Alexa. Nope. Vesta Not is even. what it's called. No. Uh, sorry, sorry. Close, uh, close. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, Jeff. I mean, look, uh, there has been interest in like you know. Home robots by other uh, mo- mo- mainly uh, Japanese companies, yep. uh, but this is Amazon, right? This is an American company. It's a very large company, and Amazon is known to make robots just in general. But robot, those these are robots that sort of work in factories. Mm-hmm. So they have on their hiring page a bunch of people who need to work with like robots now. So they're hiring software engineers and like developers to make a robot, but they're not commenting on what that robot actually does. Can you go There's back real quick? Can what? you go back real quick? Something you just quickly said. Yeah, sure. Amazon. Makes robots for the factories like that other companies use, or Amazon makes no, robots for their, for their own, own distribution. I know they use those like distribution yeah. AI, like exactly. self-driving car robot thingies yeah. in their warehouses. Yeah, so they, they already have those. Okay, but this is a different robot. And okay. this is one that's meant for like your house, I'm and serious. I assume it uses some maybe maybe some of the same technologies. Or, oh yes, like, Roomba-esque, like, perhaps. Roomba. Yeah, Roomba, like a Roomba, except maybe it is going to be a vacuum, but it's probably just like a <laughs> a, a little cute little device that you can like and ask Alexa, it questions. Also vacuum. How does yeah. it climb stairs? Stairs, though, I, I don't know. Don't mm. have stairs. It's I get mean, two. One the Roomba, your room for your downstairs. Yeah, your Roomba, and then one for each stairs. step on your stairs. Oh also. gosh, that's, <laughs> I feel like that's I feel like that's creepy. Do you guys trust 
Amazon enough to have a home robot inside your house did now with cameras I and mean, a microphone no. and all the shebang? Did we trust Amazon enough to come out with an Echo Show or an Echo or like to keep track of our purchasing habits? No, but they have well, them see, anyway. Here, and, and also, here's the thing. Like, I'm like, no. But also, like, if someone gave me like an Amazon Echo, You'd I'd like, keep it. Sick. I'd be like, yeah, I need a speaker and it's fine. If someone gave me an Amazon Home Butler robot, I wouldn't. I I like couldn't say. If no. someone gave me a dot, like an Amazon Echo dot, I'd still use it. Like, I'd still. Even though I know that I shouldn't, and I know it's bad, I think I'd still use it. Even though they've they've been known to turn on randomly in the middle of the night, see if, if it, at you. I would laughing. I would definitely like I would like if there's a way to like take out the battery while I'm sleeping or mm. something. I'd do hey, that. it's called turning it off. No, but like but turning things off doesn't mean anything. If there's no physical switch that cuts off electricity from it, turning something off doesn't mean anything. It well, just puts it to sleep. Well, the dots are also battery powered. That's true. That is true. Is that Could you true? take the battery out? Uh, I, I mean, didn't. Who, I don't who know is we? Can. Who is you? I, I don't have one. <laughs> Wait, what? I said, can you take the battery? Out? I think can it you? Is oh, I don't know. I actually, I don't know. Now I that have, I think about it, it I might no be a lithium-ion battery that you might just need to recharge. In which case, like, who knows if it's really dead and it can still be on and all that. Okay. If the light's not on. Uh, they can turn on. No, I mean, I'm saying this from the perspective of I used to be like, oh, if that green light isn't on on your laptop camera, then they can't look at you. But turns out they can. Uh, it's, it, I don't know. I don't know. This is getting a little bit too conspiracy theory. Exactly. So we I might want to cut it off here. Right. There's there's a lot. There's it's a lot of speculation just yeah. in general. I have some exciting news. Okay. You know what my favorite topic of news is? No. Not news. New tech. Bread. Real what? I bread news. Bread. How I much bread, bread news has all been, has, the time. Has there been in recent um, and, months? Uh, apparently, in the recent week, uh, we have recently uh, recovered a piece of garlic bread from effectively the edge of the universe or something like that. What? The edge of the atmosphere. Um, so YouTuber, YouTube user Tom Scott went from having a random conversation in a pub to sending a chunk of garlic bread nearly 22 miles up to the edge of space. Tom Scott? Tom Scott is one of my favorite YouTubers. Not Tom Scott. Tom Scott with two S-C-O-T-T. Yes. Tom Scott's great. He has uh, YouTube videos uh, about, like, mathy computer science stuff yep. and also just, like, some random, like, fun thing. He, uh, you'll know him from computer file YouTube videos that have gone around a bunch. Uh, he's, like, he did the one about, like, why time zones suck for programmers or uh, how oh, to yeah. not design your password security. He's the guy that made the emoji keyboard. <laughs> you know the guy that made a keyboard that does emojis? I think we covered this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's the guy that made the emoji keyboard as well. All right, Great YouTuber. Oh, shout out to Tom yeah. Scott. Wait, what did he, but what did he do? So he uh, recruited a company specializing in high-altitude balloons, random engineering, to get the uh, plate of a literal plate of garlic bread up to the edge of space. It was made with a cheese and parsley garlic butter. Uh, came from uh, Barry Lewis of My Virgin Kitchen Channel. Oh, uh, I know that one YouTube as well. It's a YouTube cooking star. Um, and it was tied down to a piece of styrofoam, left exposed to the atmosphere during its journey, hit temperatures well below freezing along the, wi- along the way, and a parachute brought it safely back to the ground. Huh? They kept half of it on, they kept half of the original loaf on Earth for a comparison tape taste test, and uh, you know how they found that it tasted cold and chewy. Oh wait, well, didn't they heat it up? Yeah, well, if you heat it up, is sending something I'm to the atmosphere and back like a way of sterilizing I'm it? I'm sure it they didn't like just straight say, up eat safe? the frozen bread. I'm sure they like well, brought it to a certain room temperature. temperature. So I think okay, we should talk about this actually. I think so. It would be safe, right? Because it's 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 not like 
things that are alive. Like, because things that make us sick are things that are alive in our food, like bacteria and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's none of that. And it's probably fine because it goes it goes up and freezes and comes back down, yeah. right? Is freezing a... I mean, I guess freezing... Freezing, yeah. 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 freezing, gets food, freezing kills bacteria. Some bacteria. And not some as bacteria. much as If the bread wasn't it, already right? bad, yeah. right? And not as much as, like, boiling stuff. I mean, there are bacteria that can, like, live in... Very cold temperatures, more so than. than so we should have boiled the bread. Yeah. To, to <laughs> well, we it. should have taken it all the way up to the vacuum of space, and then allowed. And it then to that way, it would have been. It would have been like fully sterilized and like heated, and then it would have come back down. Right. Probably what, burnt. But wait, when did when did this happen? Um, yesterday. I think approximately. Oh no, I lost it. Um, because I, I thought garlic was... bread is like old. I thought like that's like a that's like an old meme. But it, I guess garlic I guess, bread is no, still in bread fashion. Is Who are you talking about? I guess about? so. I guess it's Jacob, because Jacob, garlic, garlic bread has coin. always been in fashion. Please watch your mouth when you're on this show. <laughs> I, I do have to, I do have to apologize. Uh, the video was released like uh, I think yesterday. Yeah. We're going to move on to the second part of the show, which is the interview that, that we did. I mean, I guess technically I did. Um, it was you know, just you, Jacob, you, pretty you, much. You guys were here yeah, in spirit <laughs> with uh, Virginia Eubanks and all about her book. So we'll be playing that interview for you now. So now we are in the studio with Virginia Eubanks, the author. Uh, author of Automating Inequality, How the High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. Virginia, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I I read a bit of your of, of the book, and it's it's incredibly fascinating because on, on our end, we talk about um, automation and how, how advertisers target, um, the, basically do the opposite of what, of what a lot of your book has been talking about, how here in... in, in in New York, I remember a story about how the the public Wi-Fi systems are not being put up in poor neighborhoods because they're being uh, used because I mean their data just isn't as valuable. It's the consumers with more with uh, more income are the ones who are probably going to be buying more things, and their data is more valuable. But your book is about how these data how data is being used to specifically punish the the poor being used against them. Um, and I know that your that your book sort of opens up with a with, with a personal personal story about how you were personally affected by by an al- algorithm gone rogue. I guess is the is the word to use. If you, if you'd mind like describing that story. Sure. Um, so as I sat to uh, finish the manuscript for the book after about seven years of reporting and research. Um, my partner, my much beloved partner of 13 years, Jason Martin, um, was attacked uh, and beaten really badly on our block coming back from the corner store. Um, and he had to undergo quite a lot of uh, medical interventions, including some really pretty serious um, reconstructive surgery on his face. Mm-hmm. And a few days after he came home, I went to the pharmacy to pick up his prescription painkillers. And the pharmacist told me uh, that they had canceled the prescription because we did not have health insurance. Um, And I was shocked to hear that we didn't have health insurance because we had had it a week before. And so I ran home to call the insurance company uh, and find out what was going on. And when I reached them, um, they were very kind and concerned, and um, but said, oh, look, in the system, it looks like you don't have a start date for your coverage. And I said, well, that's weird, because, you know, you paid a claim a couple of weeks ago. So 
I, I know that we were in the system then, so how can we not have a start date? And they continued to sort of tell me, like, it just must be a technical glitch. Somebody must have accidentally erased the start date in your, in your digital file. Um, I'm sure we'll get it sorted out. Please be patient with us. Um, and they did some sort of background database magic, and they reinstated our prescription coverage. Um, but I had, uh, you know, there are bells that were ringing in my head at this point because I've studied algorithmic decision-making for many, many years, and this felt really familiar to me. It felt like the sort of electronic eye mm -hmm. of, a, of an algorithm. Um, and so I um, did some research on our, our case and uh, saw that um, while we had had insurance uh, a week before, basically starting the day that my partner's surgery bills came came in, um, our coverage had been suspended, had suddenly switched to, to not existing. Um, and I suspected that we had been targeted for an insurance fraud investigation because many of the details of our case kind of align with the things that people um, do when they're doing insurance fraud. So it was a brand new policy. I had just switched jobs and um, after I changed jobs and our insurance started, six days later, uh, Jason was attacked. Uh, he received most of the services that he got uh, late at night and in the emergency room. And also he had been prescribed uh, controlled substances, the prescription painkillers that helped him manage um, uh, the pain after the surgery. And all of those things are sort of red flags mm -hmm. for insurance fraud. So my suspicion, though I'll never know, um, because I could never get them to admit that this is what happened, is that they had red flagged us for an insurance fraud investigation and they had suspended our coverage while they completed the investigation. Um, so it's like, you know, if you put a weird charge on your credit card and they suspend your credit card until they figure out what's going on, mm -hmm. uh, I strongly suspect that it happened, um, that that's what had happened with us. Um, and so we were unsure whether we were going to be insured, whether we were going to have medical coverage through what was really one of the most difficult times in our lives and, mm -hmm. and a time where we felt really vulnerable and really at risk. Um, and so it was just a way of sort of underscoring the lots of the lessons that I was learning in this research um, that these systems that we see in the social service system, in the public assistance system, often act to um, interrogate and target people when they're at their most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Right. And you had mentioned in, in the book that you had the, the tools to sort of fight this, like you knew the system, you had a decent amount of free time. Um, and had and you know we're able to sort of ask the right questions and get this resolved in a I, I assume reasonable amount of time. Um, but you've you've also mentioned that this is that that this was uh, during your research, and I I had assumed that that this was part that sort of inspired writing the book because it happened first. Um, but can you tell me like what I mean why this subject in particular? Yeah. So actually, yeah, this wasn't a driver at all for the for the research. It was, um, I don't know, the universe underlining uh, a period at the end of the sentence, mm. uh, maybe. Um, so I got involved in this particular kind of work. Um, I come from a background in the Community Technology Center movement and in public media. Um, and I, for many years, worked as uh, somebody in uh, who helped co-design community technology centers with poor and working class communities. Um, and like you brought up at the, at the top of the interview, um, was very invested in the idea that um, the major issue around technology and social justice was people's lack of access mm -hmm. 
So I had helped build this community technology space in um, a residential YWCA in my hometown of Troy, New York. I was sitting in that um, tech lab with one of the people who lived in the community one morning. She goes by a pseudonym in the, in the book. Her name's Dorothy Allen in the book. And Dorothy and I were just sort of shooting the breeze about technology one morning. And her electronic benefits transfer card, her EBT card, that sort of debit card that you get public services on, uh, came up. And we were talking about it. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, people have told me they're more convenient, that um, it's, there's less stigma than using paper uh, food stamps. And she said, oh, yeah, well, that's all true. But my caseworker also uses it as a way to track all of my purchases and all of my movements. Mm. And I must have had this, like, incredibly shocked look on my face because she just kind of laughed at me for a while for being naive. And then she, like, got quiet and more serious, and she said, oh, you know, Virginia, you all should really pay attention to what's happening to us. And she meant those of us in the, in the welfare system because they're coming for you next. And that was 18 years ago. Okay. And I feel like Dorothy's insights have really um, uh, been really uh, prophetic that, that a lot of these things have, have really come, come to pass. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because when I, when I also read that, that story, I, I thought that it was almost normal for credit card companies to keep track of, of your purchases and like make sure that you're you know, making valid that what you are buying is what you actually want to purchase. And so reading that as like a way for people to monitor you, I mean, I, I, I just, I guess I imagine that I'm basically okay with it now. Yeah. So the difference would be that if a credit card company then asked you into their office every month and said, why are you spending your money like this? Right. You should not be doing this. Right. So <laughs> Dorothy's experience was then going to meetings with her caseworker and having her caseworker say, like, why are you spending money at the corner store? You should be going to the grocery store. It's less expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not understanding Dorothy's context, right? Like, it might be that the bus doesn't go to the grocery store at night when she's not working, or it might, mean, might be that the grocery store is actually um, too, so far away that you're actually in danger walking home with your groceries because of your neighborhood, right? Or just that Dorothy actually knows perfectly well what how to budget for herself and her family, but there's context that the caseworker doesn't understand, right? right? So it's not just that the government is tracking um, folks' purchases and movements, but then using that as a way to discipline and punish them for choices that they don't really understand. So in the in the book, without with you go over um, three different. Uh, topics that you've that you've researched in 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 the in you know your, as you said the seven years that you did uh, research with the the three of them which is which is the welfare system in Indiana, um, the unhoused in Los Angeles, and how these systems are being used with abused children in in Pennsylvania. So I I don't want to I don't know, I, I you don't need to give away the entire point of uh, of of your book, but. Maybe just in, in, in a little summary of sort of uh, what what you sort of learned or any interesting stories that, that came up in, in your research with these three t different topics. Yeah, so I, um, like you said, I talk about three different systems in three different places. Um, I talk about this attempt to automate and privatize all of the eligibility processes for the welfare system in the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. I talk about a system called the Coordinated Entry System in Los Angeles that is supposed to um, connect the most vulnerable unhoused people with the most appropriate available resources. Okay. Um, and I, I did most of my reporting in Los Angeles, in Skid Row, and South LA. 
Um, and then in Allegheny County, which is the county where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania, I look at the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, which is a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future. And I think, you know, the one of the one of the big lessons of the book or one of the big insights uh, that I came to after doing this work was that um, uh, many of the designers of these systems will talk about them as being um, unfortunate but necessary uh, systems for doing triage, for making decisions among um, all of the people who need resources when we don't have enough for everyone. So they'll say, you know, look, we have this un- overwhelming amount of need and really limited resources. And so we're using these technologies to help us make better decisions about who's most deserving of support. Um, but one of the things that I want to help people think through by writing the book is that um, this idea that we have to do triage um, is, in fact, already a political choice, right? That in lots of places in the world that um, they would see the the conditions I'm describing, whether that's being without a home or living in the street, whether that's um, not having enough food for for your family or facing the removal of a child because you don't have safe housing or food. Uh, In many places in the world, these would be seen as uh, human rights violations. And in the United States, we see them as systems engineering problems. And I think that's really incredibly profound and something we should be really, really concerned about. Because my greatest fear about these systems is that we're allowing machines to make decisions that are too difficult for us to make as human beings, so that they're acting kind of as an empathy override. And that's something we really need to pay attention to, because in the long run, it means that we're giving up on the shared goal of caring for each other. And I think that should be really concerning to all of us. So you, you mentioned that that the um, that when you talked to the, the designers of these programs, that it was that they're it's a dis, it's disappointing, but a necessary system. It, does that mean that the the system that they designed themselves are, are, are disappointed in them or they're, that they're concerned about their own design or is it just? No, not so much that. that they're concerned about the design of the systems, but more that they are disappointed that we have to build them at all. Okay. Right. And I think this is actually a really important point because the three of the three stories I talk about, the first ones, you know, it's pretty much is a pretty black hat story. Like it, it definitely seems like this administration really had the goal of um, reducing access to welfare programs. They hired, you know, a consortium of high-tech companies. They paid them $1.4 billion to design the system. And the system ended up uh, kicking, well, denying 1 million applications for public assistance in the first three years of the experiment, which was like a 50-plus percent increase from the three years beforehand. So that's a pretty, like, bad news scenario, like not good intentions, not good design, very bad outcomes. But the other two cases I talk about in Los Angeles and in Allegheny County, it's really important to know that the designers in these, um, in, of these systems are very smart people with really good intentions who have kind of done everything that we ask uh, as progressive critics of sort of algorithmic decision-making, everything that we ask. Um, designers to do. They've been very transparent about their process, what's inside the model. 
Um, they've, uh, they've been very accountable. Like these models actually sit in public agencies. They're not like proprietary information, proprietary information of a, of a corporation. Um, and they've actually even engaged in some kind of participatory design with some of the folks who are impacted by the system. So they're really doing everything right. And so one of the big questions that I'm trying to engage in the book is what does it mean that, um, designers are doing everything right that they're producing models that may even be accurate, though there are some key issues with, with both of those models I, I, I describe, um, and that still uh, produce systems that, from the point of view of their targets and the point of view of poor and working families, um, are incredibly dangerous and make them incredibly vulnerable um, and, and reproduce inequities that um, – we are supposed to be trying to to remove. And so I'm really hoping that people will have enough information in the stories that I tell in the book to really struggle with that question of like this relationship between, you know, our cultural understandings of poverty, our political systems for poverty management and technology and and the way they're all sort of wrapped up in each other, like a snake biting its tail. Mm. And so you mentioned that the people who design these systems, I, I, it sounds like you think that the systems are 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 pretty good, uh, but do you think that that maybe the the problem lies that the people who design these systems they just aren't in the situations that they're trying to prevent? Like, do you think if a uh, someone who's dealing with uh, with homelessness, if they if they had the opportunity or the resources to build a system like this, do you think they could make it better? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that. Um some of it, some of the problems of these systems are lack of sort of a contextual deep awareness of what people's lives and decision making really looks like on the ground. I think that that definitely is part of the part of the problem. Um, but I also believe that there's a sort of deep social and cultural programming that these tools are responding to. Right. So we tell a story about poverty in the United States that it is um, right a, a rare occurrence, something that happens to a minority of probably pathological people. Mm. Um, and that just is not empirically true, right? So majority, uh, the, the poverty is a majority experience in the United States. 51% of us will be below the poverty line at some point in our adult lives. And a full two-thirds of us will um, receive benefits from a means-tested public assistance program. So that's not like reduced price school lunch or social security. That's straight welfare. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're all equally vulnerable to poverty. That's not true at all. Um, if you're born poor, if you're a person of color, if you're an undocumented migrant, if you have mental health issues, if you have physical mobility issues, if you're caring for someone else, all of these factors make poverty more likely and it make it harder to, to escape. But, um, but poverty is already a majority experience and we need to, we need to um, think about it that way. And we need to produce solutions to that problem. My um, fear with these systems is that they're so um, deeply rooted in historical understandings of poverty in the United States that they spend most of their time and attention um, as tools of moral diagnosis, right? That basically they spend a lot of time trying to decide whether or not a person deserves help, whether or not a per person is deserving enough to get help, rather than focusing our time and attention on building a universal floor 
under, um, under which no one is allowed to fall, right? Um, whether that is, we say as a community, like nobody lives in the street or nobody, um, nobody's kids go without food, right? And in lots of places in the world, they have made that decision. It's, it's, I just did an interview with um, uh, someone in Ontario, and it was so interesting because their context is so different, right? We we're talking about the housing crisis in the United States, and she had said, oh, yeah, we had a similar uh, housing crisis in Ontario many years ago, um, but the Olympics had just um, come to town. So once the Olympics was, was done, we had built all we have built all these buildings for the Olympics and we just turned them over to us to unhoused people. And like now we don't really have a homeless problem anymore. Hmm. And so the issue is about like doing all of this complicated math on a problem that is really important and, and has its own complexities, but the solutions don't have to be that complicated. Mm-hmm. So there's a great guy in the book, Gary Blasey, who's a, a really a terrific homeless advocate in Los Angeles. Um, and he said, you know what? Homelessness is not a systems engineering problem. It's a carpentry problem. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to see those bigger, braver um, solutions to these problems rather than us spending all of our time and energy on moral diagnosis on trying to figure out whether poverty is a person's fault. Wow. That's, that's, that's fantastic. And well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for talking to us, Virginia. Um, do you mind telling us where, where can I, I can actually find uh, this book if I'd like to read it. <laughs> so uh, the book is called Automating Inequality. And I don't actually know which bookstores in New York City are carrying it right now. Mm-hmm. I would say um, go request it at the Strand and see if they can get it in for you. Um, if if you fail at that, then go to the Big Evil and mm-hmm. and you can get it on Amazon. Uh, nice. But I would rather that you support Blue Stockings or Word in Brooklyn or or the Strand. Um, so if they don't already have it, uh, ask them to stock it. All right. Well, thanks again for talking with us. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, the conversation. It's been really fun for me. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Weekly Refresh. We hope you enjoyed the tech news and the I interview. Did. I did. Jacob enjoyed them. I've been Nick. I've been Tristy. Hey, and I've been Jacob. Thanks there you See you go. next week. Bye. I love you. What? <laughs>